You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, thank you for uh, bringing us together on this uh, third Sunday of Advent. And Lord, um, what a what a morning we've already had hearing um, your your gospel and your word announced to us. Thank you for the good word that you gave um, Zach for us this morning. I was so, so moved by that and but so grateful. And, and we ask that today as we wrap up this series in the Psalms of Ascent, that you would bless us and bring our hearts together and our minds together um, as we enter into this portion of your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't think I've left any time for questions over the past few weeks. I will try to do that today. I think we have a little bit more flexibility with our time. And, and my goals today are a little bit more modest. All right, I want to I do, um, I, wanna, I would like to look quickly at three psalms. I think we can, I think we can knock that out. Um, but before we do that, for those of you who have not been in this, who are sort of jumping in third week with us, we, we've been doing a series in the Psalms of Ascent, uh, thinking about the Psalms of, of Ascent from the standpoint of locating them um, liturgically in the life and the season of Advent, which actually makes a lot of sense. I, I thought I was doing something rather interesting and intriguing, but did you notice our lectionary reading today, the Psalm, right? Right, so I guess I wasn't the first one to think of this. Um, Psalm 126, which we'll look at briefly again this morning, was our our reading this morning. There, there's a, in other words, there's a natural affinity uh, between the Psalms of Ascent and the season of Advent. That is, they 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 lean into and they touch several nerves. Um, they touch the nerve primarily of what it means to live life as a pilgrim recognizing that we are located in a, in a particular place and time, and yet at the same time we know that we're not bound by our, our identity in this place and time. We are moving uh, somewhere else. So we're sort of pilgrims on the move, and on the move, at least from the Psalms of Ascent, to the temple, um, to, uh, to Mount Zion. And of course, and I'd, like to, I'd love to talk more about this, but I'll, I'll, I'll chase the rabbit too far. Um, but the temple imagery of the Old Testament, Zion imagery in the Old Testament, all um, finds its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So to think of temple and Zion in conjunction with the person and work of Jesus is not an imposition. In fact, here's the logic of the book of Hebrews. The logic of the book of Hebrews was not... So there were all these sacrifices that were going on in the Old Testament and all this liturgical worship in the life of the temple. And then God said, I think I'm going to build um, my final redemptive uh, movement in my son based off of those images and types that were there in the temple in the Old Testament. That's not the logic. The logic is actually quite the reverse. The temple, temple worship, sacrificial worship, the life of praise and repentance that marked the temple, and you know, the temple was the Garden of Eden in many ways. It was life in the midst of death. It was the reverse of the requiem. You know, those of you who are familiar with requiem language, in the midst of life, we are in death. I can hear the sort of John Rutter requiem repeating that refrain over and over. In the midst of life, we are in death, as the bass kind of go along with that, with that, that line. Uh, the temple was the reverse of that. In the midst of death, 
The reality of the existence that we know in this world, when we lift our eyes to the temple, we recognize that there is life. Uh, Jewish scholar John Levinson called the temple an intimation of immortality. The fact that the temple existed within the midst of Israel was, a, was an attestation to the fact that there is life in the midst of a reality that's marked uh, by, by death in human existence. So the temple is central. And you think about it, of course, this is, um, you find this in the Gospels, right? Where Jesus says, tear this temple down and in three days I will build it up again. And they thought he was crazy and, and uh, they laughed at him. And, and, and then uh, he's on the cross and they actually use that phrase as a word of derision. You know, you're, you're going to tear the temple down. Well, well, how about let, let's see you do it now. So, so the temple imagery, Zion imagery is central to the Old Testament as we're moving uh, toward it. We even heard uh, one of the shepherds this morning uh, do Psalm 121. I will lift my eyes into the hills from where does my help come from? Um, and then he kind of botched his line at the end a little bit. Yeah, I'm sorry. It was my son. I mean, this is, uh, uh, he, he felt real badly about it. He worked real hard and then he blew it. It's all right. Um, and I'm joking. He'll be fine. He'll be fine. Um, I know it's bad. I, I'm not. My kids are all going to be on Dr. Phil someday. It's not. It's not good. All right. So, so with that, I want to do two psalms today. I, I do. I would love to go back to Psalm 126 um, and look at that, but I won't. You you can go back to Psalm 126 in your. Let, let's do a Psalm 130, shall we? And I'm going to read Psalm 130, and then we'll talk about it. Um, if pressed into a corner. Um, I think there are probably two psalms, uh, maybe favorites, not the right way to describe them, but at least they've been very instrumental at key moments in my own life. One of those is Psalm 73, um, and I would say probably the other one is Psalm 130. Well, I think Psalm 130 is a profound psalm. Um, for those of you, again, who uh, are familiar with the liturgical tradition, this psalm is referred to as De Profundis, Out of the Depths. So let me read this psalm to you. And again, think of this psalm, place this psalm in the context of Advent yearning. Yearning for consummation, yearning for something to be made right. Think of it within that particular context. And here, here I'll, I'll read it to you. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And now the psalm goes into the second part. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. That might be a Hebrew word some of you know. Uh, with the Lord there is chesed, right? And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all uh, his iniquities. So if you think about Psalm 130 as sort of life along the way, it speaks of the character of our existence as pilgrims, recognizing that we're not at our destination yet. Um, my my wife, we were, I woke up a little bit later than the rest of the family yesterday and came downstairs and my wife had found on YouTube a um, a kind of new rendition of Pilgrim's Progress and the kids were watching this and um, and and it's and it's kind of wild you know to think about 
the, the nature of Christian being called into this pilgrim existence and he's bearing this burden that he's carrying around, right? Some of you are familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, which by the way, you know, now having read some, I've read Pilgrim's Progress, having read some, it's not great literature. I mean, is that a horrible thing to say? Like, don't, don't throw anybody over the bus. I mean, it's actually, it's not great stuff. It's, it's, it's a little clunky here and there and, and some of the, some of the images are way overdone. You think, good Lord, I mean, this is, it's, it's a little bit, um, a little gaudy actually at times, Pilgrim's Progress. And yet, it doesn't matter, right? Because it taps into something that's so, um, near and dear every Christian's existence. Uh, the nature of the fact that we know what it is to bear a burden. And we know what it is to come to the cross and to find, and this was a great scene. I think they did this low budget film we saw yesterday morning for 2,500 bucks in the, it looks like in the mountains of Colorado or something. He finds this cross on the top of a mountain and off comes his burden, right? Rolling down the mountain. And no longer is he bearing the burden, but are his troubles over? <laughs> no. The slew of despond awaits him. Giant despair, despair in the castle of despair. So all these things are still awaiting him. He's not left his existence, even though he recognizes that the burden of his sin is gone. That's what I like about Psalm 130. Psalm 130 is a psalm that sort of leans into the fact that even in our pilgrim existence, we know that we cannot transcend, and this is the phrase that I've been thinking about a lot over the past year, because I think it's so important. We can't transcend our bodies. I don't know if you ever feel that way. Um, you can't get away from yourself. I've thought about that even from the standpoint of, of um, illness and disease. Um, there's something, metaphysical is not the right term, but there's something challenging, I think, uh, when, when you think about the fact that you've been given a diagnosis about something that's in your body that wants to kill you, and you can't get away from it. You know, you know and, and I, I feel that even in whenever, the, just, just the, the weight of that. I can't escape my body I'm, I'm bound by it. And, and, and I think this is what the psalmist is saying. And that bodily existence is an existence that's marked by sin. We, we talk about that a lot around here at the Advent. By the way, Advent's weird on that. Um, not a lot of churches do this. Um, but we, the fact that we are sinners and will be sinners throughout the whole of our being till we breathe our last breath, we recognize that that has a massive impact on how we understand ourselves and how we, we view our relationship with others. We can't transcend our bodies. So Psalm 130 leans into that. Out of the depths have I called to you. Out of distress have I called to you. Uh, Martin Luther translated this when he did this, the Old Testament to German. He translated this, um, Out of deep distress I have called to you. Um, and I think distress is fine. I think it's probably a little bit too limited, though, because the depths here uh, lean into as an image, as a metaphor, that I guess most pernicious metaphor that the Old Testament thinkers could have used, namely the water. We've talked about this before. You've heard me say it before. But, you know, holidays at the sea, um, going out on a cruise. I mean, people are like, are you crazy? You need to go on a behemoth and, and uh, Leviathan are out there. on the. Who wants to go on a cruise and meet them? Um, so the depths, distress, the rivers, the waters, um, that's the scene that marks Psalm 130. That's the moment that the person calls out from deep distress. There's a link here, I think, between Psalm 130 and the book of Jonah. 
um, where you know you see Jonah who is out on the middle of the sea, having been cast into the sea for the sake of sparing the sailors and their ship. The sea calms down, and and we, from what we know, for Jonah, that's it. I mean, when you're thrown overboard in the middle of the sea, um, that's over. And when a when a when a when a big fish comes and swallows you, you're doubly over. It's like, it's like that, it's, it's, this, there's no coming back from this. Um, and yet, of course, we know that Jonah is redeemed and he calls to God from his distress as well. There's an organic and substantial link between Psalm 130 and the book of Jonah. Uh, that, that, that sort of image of the sea and of, of drowning. And, and the, the way that, that Jonah talks about it in Jonah 2 is the seaweed and the currents began to wrap around my head and I couldn't escape them. What a great metaphor for the distresses that meet us at various moments in our lives. And the, the, the scene that I remember, that sort of came to my mind, illustrative of the horror of distress and despair from the depths of the water, is that last scene in The Perfect Storm. That was not a happy movie. Um, have you, I mean, how many of you have seen that movie with, uh, what's his name, uh, the Clooney, right? Um, you know, so here they are, and they're out in the middle of the of the northern Atlantic Ocean, and and they and it's all of the ship goes down, and the last scene I think is Mark Wahlberg's character sort of in the middle of the waves, going up and down, and then the camera just exits out, and then he's no longer there. I mean, that is a horrifying. That's the picture that I think the psalmist wants us to think of and link to a recognition of the fact that we're sinners that can't escape our bodies, but we're lost on a sea. And we cry out to God from the distress of that moment in our pilgrim existence, knowing that our burdens are gone, and yet we're still not to the celestial city yet. We're still not there. So, so he, he clarifies, though, the psalmist says, then leave this in the abstract. It's not just any depths that he's crying from. He's crying from a particular depth. Oh, Lord, hear my voice. Hear my pleas for mercy. And now he zones in on what the real issue is. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Um, If we could gloss it this way. Lord, if you kept a running tally of our sins and, and pulled out that file to use in some sort of legal case against us. This is a, a juridical scene. It's a legal scene. So, so if you were to pull out your brief in this courtroom setting and open up our file where you have marked our iniquities and you have them highlighted in yellow, um, no one could stand. Who, who could stand before you? Um, that's, uh, that's a horrifying thought, actually, the Lord marking our iniquities. If you were to do that... Who could stand? And then there's the quick retort from the psalmist, but we know that with you, there is forgiveness. He forgives. He closes the file. You know, there's a great story that Luther tells about having a dream about standing before God. And as he stands before God, a Satan un- uh, opens up his file and begins to lay out before the Lord all the sins that Martin Luther had committed. And I, you know, I used to have these... And I grew up in a kind of a revivalist tradition, you know, in the Baptist world. And I remember having these sort of horrible thoughts that, you know, someday my sins would be played on the big screen before all my church. And they could just watch everything that I did, you know. And I mean, these are horrible thoughts, right? If, if, if that were to happen, um, no one could stand. But with him, there is forgiveness and there is mercy. 
And what, look at the next phrase here as he moves on here. But with you there is forgiveness so that you may be feared. That's an interesting turn of phrase, isn't it? Um, we're all adults in here. You know, and I've, I've mentioned this to some of my students at, at um, where I teach. And I, I, and I think this is right. When we talk to our children about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? And that's, that's central to the way in which the book of Proverbs, for example, shapes the wisdom tradition. The book of Proverbs, as an aside, will borrow capital from any wisdom tradition that's out there. Um, I think this says a lot about the kind of ways in which we as Christians should read broadly and you know read as much as you can. You like philosophy, read away. Um, you like uh, I don't know um, astrophysics, read on. I mean, in other words, borrow from anything that you can borrow from to, to read and be interested in a broad array of things. The, 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 those who wrote the Book of Proverbs had obviously read Egyptian wisdom literature. I'm just saying that as an aside. Um, there, there's almost carbon copy overlap between certain proverbs and, and, the, and the wise sayings of Amenemope, an Egyptian sage from about a thousand years before um, the book of Proverbs was written. So they're barring widely. But this is what the Egyptians did not do. They did not shape the wisdom tradition within the context of the fear of the Lord. In other words, all the wisdom stuff that you're borrowing from, and I would say this as to Christians as well, in our broad reading... We read broadly with a great deal of interest, but all of our reading is shaped by an understanding of the fear of the Lord. We read with a certain set of lenses and every idea and every movement that we happen to engage that, that, that sort of piques our, our intellectual curiosities. Um, the fear of the Lord. So, But when we talk to our kids about the fear, we say, you know, fear is respect and, and it's reverential awe, and that's true. Um, but it's also... Um, the knee-knocking stuff. It's also bona fide fear. Um, th- this is the illustration that came to me thinking about this psalm for you all, because I think it's, it taps into this. Um, Peter's on a boat with the rest of the disciples, and they're, and they're, about, they're about to come undone. It's a, it's a Jonah scene. And by the way, the Bible... Remember we talked about last week how the Bible can bend time? The Bible bends time with the stories that it uses as well, where old stories get recapitulated in new stories. That scene on the ocean, uh, when they're on the Sea of Galilee, not the ocean, the Sea of Galilee, and the storm comes, and they think they're coming undone. And if you read that scene and you think Book of Jonah, you're supposed to. I mean, this, this is the Book of Jonah kind of come, come to bear in a particular moment here. And Jesus is fast asleep on the ship. And, and the Peter wakes him up and he says, can you imagine the things that Peter's actually said to Jesus Christ? Um, Peter says, do you care uh, that we're about to die? I mean, are you sitting there snoring away? Or do you care about anything? And, and so Jesus rouses himself. And, and what does Jesus do? Um, he enters and he, he displays his divine identity. Not, with, not by saying, I am God but by speaking in such a way that the wind and the waves recognize the voice of their creator and they respond in humility and subservience. It's, it's remarkable. Oh, oh, Jesus doesn't need to say then, I am Adonai. I am Jehovah. He's demonstrating when he forgives sins, uh, when he makes the waters to cease from their raging, when he raises the little girl from the dead and shows that he actually has the power over death. Death does not have the power over him. When he does all those things, he's not saying with his mouth, I am Jehovah, I am Yahweh. He's demonstrating in his actions, this is who I am. 
And when he does that, do you remember Peter's response? Peter's response, I think, is Psalm 130, verse 5. Um, he falls at his feet and he says, Woe is me. I am a sinful man. Isn't that an interesting response from Peter? He sees the powerful actions of Jesus and his response is one of fear and a recognition of his own sinful state. That's what I think the psalmist is talking about here. There's forgiveness with you so that you may be feared. It, it leaves us awestruck. It leaves us dumbfounded when the king of the universe who knows us, and by the way, none of us really know each other you know, on, on a sort of deep level. We know each other. But I mean, we don't know. I mean, think about your most intimate relationships. We still don't really know each other, do we? Right? I mean, it's like a, we're, we're profound mysteries even unto ourselves, right? Um, but especially when it comes to our sin. I mean, I'm not going to sit up here. I mean, I was, I was kind of a, a, through a Christian experience at one point in time where there was a big push toward transparency, right? You were probably part of this one before. Right? Ever just share everything, right? So we'd have these Sunday night things at our church and people would get up and just share the most god awful stuff, you know, and they'd share it and, and, uh, and I used to think that I, I, I'm, I'm never sharing all my stuff with you all. I, just, I don't want you to know. And I, I mean, just, it's bad. I, it's bad. I don't want you to know all my stuff. Um, but God knows all of it. And he, he's not unaware of any of it. In other words, God's not impressed with any of us in that way. He's not, he just knows too much about us. And yet, despite that, he completely forgives us. And I, I think the proper response to that really is fear. In other words, you really do know who I am. Um, and yet you're willing in your kindness and your mercy because of your son to forgive me, to, to not bear it against me. Um, let me put it in other terms. To not bring it up again in my face. To not remind me of who I really am. You, you don't do that. It's grace. It's, it's, it's remarkable. And I think the proper response to that is like the end of Job. We just put our hands over our mouth. We're just, we're awestruck by that. Um, the great theologians used to talk about the mysterium tremendum as they talked about uh, uh, the, the nature and the character of God. He's both a deep mystery, profound mystery, that elicits a deep, a knee-knocking reverence and awe and fear. That's the kind of God uh, who forgives us. So, Pilgrims along the way, we move toward a recognition of who we are and who God is. And that, by the way, is at the heart of the Christian experience. A true recognition and confession of who we are and a true recognition and confession of who, of who God is. All right, what's our time? Oh yeah, we're good. Uh, listen to the psalm that comes after Psalm 130. I love, I think this is all intentional, I think. It's shaped in a way. So if Psalm 130 is right, we call from the depths. He doesn't mark our iniquities. We're sinners who are forgiven. That leads us to a posture of fear. Now listen to Psalm 130. It's almost like a commentary on Psalm 130. Oh Lord. And by the way, it's the only true response to the reality of Psalm 130. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. By the way, those two terms in the Hebrew, if I can bore you for a second, lifted up, raised too high, those are the same terms that are used to describe God Himself on His throne in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, remember this, raised and exalted, 
high and lifted up. Only God is high and exalted. And when we recognize who we are, Psalm 130, and who He is as a forgiving and gracious God, Psalm 130, we recognize only God is lifted up and high. My, my heart is not lifted up. My, my eyes are not raised too high. I don't occupy myself with things too marvelous for me, too great. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Isn't that beautiful? Um, uh, Think about what Psalm 130 and Psalm 131 bring together when it comes to a kind of a view of our relationship with God. Number one, when we recognize that He forgives our sins and He knows who we really are, it leads us to fear. It leads us to a kind of state of awe and shock that He would be that kind of God with us. We, don't, we can't hide anything from Him. That's a statement about God's transcendence, His otherness. Because there's no one that you know who's like that. No one that you know who's like that. He's transcendent. He's other. And yet, what does Psalm 131 do? Here's what the humility looks like that responds to the reality of Psalm 130. It's a, it's a picture, a beautiful picture of intimacy and eminence. He's transcendent. He's other. He leads us to fear. And yet at the same time, what's the metaphor that's used in Psalm 131? Like a little child that crawls into the lap of its mother and finds rest and security there. That's what I do with the God who's forgiven me. I'm not going to raise and exalt myself. I'm going to be like a child that nestles itself in the lap of its mother, recognizing that all of my security and all of my warmth and all of my hope is found right here. Psalm 130, Psalm 131, wonderful kind of interlocution, a conversation back and forth between the character of God as one who's transcendent in His forgiveness and imminent in the way in which He relates to us, that we can crawl into His lap and find uh, our security there. I've seen this sort of recently. I mean, we've got a three-year-old little girl who's cuddly, right? We've got some children who aren't cuddly. Um, and uh, and she is. I mean, she'll crawl in. Now, when she gets mad at me, she's done this recently. So she's um, like, uh, she wants five stories when I put her down to bed. And she always wants, mommy's better. She tells me that very clearly. Just so you know, dad, I like mommy better. I'm like, I get it. I get it. Um, and then one night I said, uh, she wants five stories every night. So I tell her these stories and and then I won't tell her anymore. And one night she was like, well, if you don't tell me any more stories, Daddy, then I'm not going to be your daughter anymore. I was like, oh, really? Is that right? Well, I've got bad news for you. Um, all to say, she, she's, she can be spicy, but she's cuddly. You know, she crawls into the... And, when, and in that moment, what, just the, it's a beautiful metaphor, I think, for our relationship with God. God as our father and God as our mother. I mean, the one that we nestle in and find... Uh, comfort and stability. I wanted to do one more psalm, and then that's it. Psalm 133. Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers, and I'll just go and make this more gender inclusive, when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. It's like, think about the way these metaphors work here. It's like precious oil on the head that runs down to the beard. Think about the anointing of the high priest. Runs down the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down onto the collar of his robes. Um, it's, verse 3, like the dew of Hermon 
which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. So this will be our last psalm of ascent. I'm going to make a few comments and then, then I'll stop. Um, there's a, and I'm going to get nerdy with you for a second. There, there's a Hebrew word in here that gets lost in every translation. I hate it when people do this, but I'm going to do it. That gets lost in every translation. And it's a little word, uh, Hebrew word called, it's, it's gam is the term, but it means um, indeed. Or another way of saying it would be already. So if I were to gloss this first verse, it would be how beautiful it is when those who are already brothers and sisters live together in unity. In other words, um, this is not an appeal to make something happen that's not already there. It's an appeal to the pilgrims along the way in the community of faith to live into the existence that they already have because they're brothers and they're sisters. And when that happens, when the church lives in that way, into the unity that's already theirs, it is a beautiful thing. Um, I mean, I, you know, I've got three boys and, uh, and I mean, just this morning, I mean, we weren't even out of the bedroom before, you know, borderline fisticuffs were going on. I, all to say, when I see brothers living together in unity, I've seen it one time. It was gorgeous. That one time it happened like that. It's a beautiful thing, right? Um, it, the, 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 it's, it, it's beautiful. And, and here's the psalmist recognizing that discord is a part of what it means to be in human relationships with others. But what the psalmist is doing is a very kind of Dietrich Bonhoeffer thing in his book, Life Together. He's saying that Christian unity is not an ideal. It's a reality that already exists because of who we are in Christ. We're the people who identify themselves as Psalm 130, Psalm 131 kind of people. We're we're the people that recognize who we really are. And we also recognize who he really is, the one who's transcendent and the one who's imminent. And that makes Christian brothers and sisters have a unique relationship with each other because their identity is already found in him. And this is where the psalmist says, and when the church, when brothers and sisters live into that reality, when they live into what they already are, it is a beautiful thing. It's like oil streaming down Aaron's beard, which doesn't sound great, actually, but you've seen maybe these scenes in movies where a priest gets anointed and the oil, this fine oil, runs down the beard. Or like the dew from Mount Hermon falling on Mount Zion. And if you've done any Bible geography, you know this is a massive problem. Now, Hermon's about 120 miles north of Jerusalem. There's no dew from Hermon that's trickling down uh, to Zion. It's not about geography. It's the spatial image and metaphor that the, that the psalmist is wanting you to know. It's coming from up to down. And that's exactly how unity works in the life of the church. It flows from our head, from our Lord, and trickles down into the life of what it means to live in existence one with another. And when that happens, the psalmist says, it is a good and a beautiful thing. Okay, so I wanted to bring those three psalms here. Psalm 130, Psalm 131 sort of fitted together. And then what's the ecclesial outcome of Psalm 130 and 131? It's the beautiful unity that we live into uh, in Psalm uh, 133. Okay, I'm going to stop. I think I have time for maybe, what time is it, Brandon? Can you see behind you? I have time for a few questions. We have five minutes. You want to bat anything around? Any ideas? Any thoughts?
Anything? This was written to, to in the Old Testament Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, I think that. Um, so you should. How it is, and that's a harder question, actually. I think for for me to answer well, it's a good question. It's a harder one for me to answer well, um, because I think there is a solidarity within, say, sort of current Judaism. Um, the solidarity would would be around Torah and how Torah shapes existence, um, and I think there would also be an understanding of a shared life of suffering together that tends to mark a kind of historical understanding of Judaism within the life of the world. Um, but that's that's kind of beyond, that's beyond my pay grade to answer that question well. Um, but I do think the ways in which I think about this from a Christian standpoint has to do with the comments that I made at the beginning of the class. Namely, I can't think of all of these images in the Old Testament again anachronistically: uh, Temple, David, Zion, Jerusalem, sacrifice, praise, lament, suffering. All of that becomes, if I can use the proper term for the church, I think, church's reading, a figure. These are figural anticipations of what in time Jesus in his person and work recapitulates all of that in his own human history and story. Um, so it's not an imposition to think of, because why? The Psalter is the prayer book of Israel. But we also understand from a theological standpoint that Jesus is Israel in a very real sense. Not that Jesus... Um, supersedes national Israel as if that doesn't matter anymore. But Jesus is Israel, and he's, he's Israel for Israel and the nations. So to think of the Psalms as the prayer book of Israel slash the prayer book of Christ, that's not an imposition. I think that's a proper way of understanding the way in which the Bible is talking to itself. I think that's the kind of move that one makes. But because it's poetry, you know, I think the Psalms open themselves up to multiple uh, points of interpretation that are not mutually self-defeating. Or if I can use Anglican language, they're not repugnant to each other. So, for example, Luther's going to read all the Psalms in a very heavy-handedly Christological way. Um, Calvin's going to actually read a lot of the Psalms through the lens of David, uh, more from the standpoint of Christian existence. Those aren't at odds with one another, but they are different kinds of reading strategies, I think. Um, that one would find. And I think the poetry itself lends itself to that kind of multiple interpretation. It's, it's not a kind of interpretation that has no boundaries. You know, some, some, the, the train can go off the track. But the interpretive track, I think, when it comes to poetry, is really broad. Um, just like any poetry that we read, I think. I mean, poetry has the ability to create resonances and thoughts that really even authors themselves can't anticipate, I don't think. Um, at least the best of poetry can do that. Yeah. Very much so. Very much so. And that's why I think fulfillment, um, or at least my understanding of fulfillment, is not um, sort of mortar shot stuff where you have Psalm 130, you drop that into the, you know, the Bible canon and it lands on Jesus. I, I think of fulfillment, this is the metaphor that I've been using over the past couple of years now, it just sort of popped in my mind one day. It's, it's the flower coming to full bloom. And, and if you see that, if you see that on TV before they put a camera on a flower and they fast track it through time, you can just see it sort of opening up. That's how I understand biblical prophecy and fulfillment primarily. As a flower that's now bloomed out to its fullest. Does that mean that there aren't other fulfillments along the way? 
Well, well sure. Um, for example, it, it matters that Zerubbabel. Anybody know about Zerubbabel? No. Yeah. Oh, you do? Okay, sorry. Uh, <laughs> you're not supposed to have Vernon. I've read that name in the Bible there. Like I know. You were so you, you, anyway, um, uh, so uh, Zerubbabel, he's the king. He's the Davidic king on the throne after the exile. Um, and he really was, he was kind of lackluster, frankly. But he's a Davidic king on the throne after the exile. That, you know, that, that itself is a kind of down payment on the fact that God in time will continue to make good on his promises in the Davidic covenant that will bloom in their fullness in the person and work of Jesus. I think similarly about Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph is a, is a fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham that through his seed, they, they would be the means by which the world would be blessed. Well, Joseph's doing that before we even get out of the book of Genesis. But the flower's not bloomed to its fullest yet. It blooms to its fullest uh, in the person and work of Jesus. So yes, I think that's very much the case. And why I think the question about Israel is still a legitimate one. Because even though the flower has bloomed to its fullness, it doesn't mean that other aspects of the flower are not, are not still at play within, the, within a larger vision. And I, I'm still trying to get my mind around some of those issues. Any, any other thoughts or questions or frustrations? Oh, good. I, I just, just, just what's weird. I didn't plan this one, um, but the, the, you know, the, the far Psalms of Ascent. But the, it really, uh, I've been glad to do it. It's been good for me too. Yeah. All right. Let me pray. Lord, bless these friends as they uh, go away from here. Um, and Lord, let us be reminded of that you, you, you know us. We we can't escape you, and we put all kinds of facades up in our lives, and and we maybe and we probably should. Um, for, for the sake of loving our neighbors, Lord. Um, and yet, Lord, you, you know who we really are. And you still love us. And you still forgive us. Um, and you let us crawl up into your lap and find comfort and security there, knowing that you're the God who created and you're the God, Lord, who stoops low. And you remember our frame. We're just dust, Lord. You know that about us. And you treat us that way in kindness and grace. Thank you, Lord. Let that fill us with Advent hope as we look for your coming again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.